Good afternoon. Thank you guys for coming. Those watching on the uh, closed circuit TV, open circuit TV, the Fred and Karen Schuler Family Network, welcome. Uh, atonement today, uh, page 480, uh, 248, um, if you have your book with you, and uh, what a fantastic um, topic. I mean, what, so much to be thankful for as we think about this. Scott, would you pray for us? And, uh, and then maybe we'll start in Romans 3 um, for, for just a second because it's too good to, to, to miss out on it. And once we get going, I don't want to miss out on that. And then, uh, and then we'll dive in. Scott? Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are thankful uh, that we can gather here and just open up this Grudem book and uh, learn from it and, and learn systematic theology. And we uh, certainly confess that we come to a chapter on the atonement. We're coming to holy ground today. Uh, and Father, I feel like there's, there's always probably a danger in studying systematic theology where we just treat it merely academically uh, and just in terms of acquiring more knowledge. And we don't want it to be merely academic today. Yes, we want to know more about the atonement, but I pray that this knowledge would transform us. Uh, I pray that we would all leave here changed as we study the atonement. I pray that there would be worship that would happen as we look again at what the Savior has endured for us, that there would be genuine thanksgiving and worship that would take place in all of our hearts and that our lives would be transformed as we uh, behold the glory of Christ today in this chapter and in the Scripture passages that we look at. And we just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Scott. There's six consecutive verses that absolutely explain the gospel, maybe better than any other six in Scripture, I think arguably. Chapter 3 of Romans, uh, 21 uh, to 26, and especially 25 and 26 um, today may help us on this uh, idea of atonement, trying to understand that. Um, could you, Pop, are you there? Could you read that? I would love to, Jerry. Good. Thank you. <clears throat> the word of the God, uh, word of God, um, Romans three twenty one. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Good, so it took the Lord Jesus uh, in the atonement to, to do that, that God could both be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in, in Jesus. Here's the, uh, and you may have this on page 248 uh, at the top. We may define atonement as follows. The atonement is the work of Christ uh, did in his life and death to earn our salvation. This definition indicates that we are using the word atonement in a broader sense than is sometimes used. Sometimes it is used to refer only to Jesus dying and paying for our sins on the cross. But as we, uh, as seen below, uh, since saving benefits also come from Christ's life. 
we have included that in our definition as well. And I think that is uh, really uh, an interesting part of what we'll look at. Mark, can you help us here to say, how does this point at, or how is this, what he goes on to say is scripture points us to two things, the love and the justice of God. That's the cause of atonement. Could you kind of help us um, marry those things together? Yeah, there, there's been an accusation amongst more of, I guess you could say, more progressive or liberal Christianity, which is more going to not take the Bible as being inerrant. And they will oftentimes say, why couldn't God just forgive? Why did He have to resort to His Son being slaughtered? And, and as I mentioned maybe a couple weeks ago, in 2005, six authors were, were writing and calling this divine child abuse, the idea that God would send His Son as an innocent person to die in the place of sinners and that God would pour out His just wrath on Jesus, who never sinned, that is divine cosmic child abuse, is what a number of authors uh, popularized that saying. Why couldn't God just forgive? Aren't we commanded to just forgive our enemies? If your enemy sins against you, you forgive them, you pray for them, you just, you just forgive. You don't demand that they pay or that someone else pays, you just forgive. And so, can't God do what He commands us to do and just forgive? Why does there have to be blood spilt? Why does there have to be a cross? Why a, a death and a resurrection? And the answer is, if God would have done that, if God would have just said, okay, your sins are gone, you've committed thousands of sins, the human race has committed trillions of sins, if God just wiped them all out and got rid of them and there was no blood of Christ, He would actually be saying that the dishonoring of His glory all those trillions of times, not a very big deal because I can just snap my fingers, sweep it under the rug, and if God were to do that, He would be compromising His justice because justice is not being served, and He would be compromising His very glory because He would say, trillions of dishonoring against my glory, no big deal, I just forgive. And if God did that, He would compromise His very character as God. So Paul here in Romans 3 is saying, just look, look one more time at the, uh, verse, starting verse 25. Whom, so, talking about Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that means Jesus took God's wrath so we don't have to, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath bearer, by His blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Think every sin committed in the Old Testament era. Then it says, it was to show His, God's righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So when you think of David committing adultery and murder, Nathan, you know, goes and tells the parable of the sheep. David says, that man needs to be killed. And what does David say? I mean, Nathan say to David, you are You're the, the man. You are the man. And by God's grace, David doesn't have Nathan executed, which he could have done if he was unrepentant, like he did to Uriah. Instead, David says, I have sinned against Yahweh. I've sinned against the Lord. And David goes into a time of deep repentance, right? Psalm 51 in repentance. But even the tears of repentance of David cannot atone for what David did. And if God just forgave him, you know, Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. And if that was the end of the story, God compromises his justice and his glory. And so God puts all that on hold and waits to punish that sin in the person of Jesus so that God's glory is not ultimately dishonored. Jesus says, no, God's glory was dishonored and my blood must be spilt to pay for it and God's justice requires payment. I will pay in full with my blood. So God can be both just, holding up His righteousness and glory, and also uh, freely forgive sinners who've turned to Christ. You know, this, it, I think you make a really good point. Uh, of course, you're, you're 
you're calling on the character of God. Um, he's both love and just. Uh, we, we, we study, I have we done the, I don't think we've done the characteristics of God, but you study the characteristics of God and, and he is love. That yes, a lot of people say, well, God is love. He wouldn't do this. No, God is all love. He is the, the beginning and the end of love. And it's only through God that we can love. But he's also just, which means righteous. He's holy. He cannot look on sin. So you see the, see the conflict between those two terms. He's love, and yet he cannot look on sin. It has to be punished. It has to be made atoned for. Now, atonement's mentioned 90 times in the OT and never in the New Testament. But you get terms like uh, propitiation. Uh, and, and that type of things. God's wrath is, is prominent also in the New Testament. So that's what we're dealing with here is the atonement, how God can satisfy this requirement to be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Scott? Yeah, well, I was thinking of the beginning where he says the necessity of the atonement. Can I, I'm just going to read a little bit on 249, uh, top of 249. Grudem says this, um, he says, was there any other way for God to save human beings than by sending his son to die in our place? Before answering this question, it is important to realize that it was not necessary for God to save any people at all. When we appreciate that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment, Second Peter 2.4, then we realize that God also could have chosen with perfect justice to have left us in our sins awaiting judgment. He could have chosen to save no one just as he did with the sinful angels. So in this sense, the atonement was not absolutely necessary. And I just think it's so important for us to understand this. God could have chosen with perfect justice to have left us in our sins awaiting judgment. He could have chosen to save no one. I mean, we, we know that intellectually, I think, but I think it's so important for us to really grab that, let that truth sink down into us. And, and because there's an importance in, in understanding this, that God could have chosen to save nobody, and yet he's saved millions of people, including us. One of the reasons why it's so important to know this is that magnifies God's grace so powerfully when we realize he could have chosen to save none of us. And so I think the second reason I would say why it's so important for us to know this is so often, like Mark, you've said, we're shocked by the wrong things in the Bible. Over and over again, we're shocked by the wrong things. But if we understand that God didn't have to save anyone, we will begin to be shocked by the right things in the Bible. So we, we go to Noah's Ark and, and the flood, and so many people, how could God send a flood and destroy the whole world? Well, no, the shocking thing when we understand this is, how could God provide an ark? How could he save Noah and his family? That's the shocking thing about th that story. And then not only did God provide an ark, he eventually provided his son. When we see that, this just explodes with, with God's goodness and his mercy. And I, I, it reminds me of Sproul in the Holiness of God. He said, in two decades of teaching theology, I've had countless students ask me why God doesn't save everybody. So lots and lots of people asked that question. But he said, only one time in two decades did a student come to me and say, there's something I just can't figure out. Why did God redeem me? I mean, something is wrong when the vast majority of our questions is, how, why doesn't God save everybody? And only one person is saying, how did God redeem me? I remember Jose Rodriguez, after his conversion, this is what he was saying. I can't believe God has redeemed me. So we just need to remember this truth to magnify the mercy and grace of God. That's so good, Scott. And especially when you think about what he did to the lengths by killing his son, by sacrificing his own son, who had a perfect love relationship, God the Father and God the Son, for all of eternity past. And then God sacrificed him for us. And you just say, that is, it is incredible. And it is, 
uh, and should give, like you're saying, Scott, a deep gratefulness as we go through life and, and uh, um, just to think about that kind of grace. I don't know if you've said this before, but <clears throat> I think you had said at some point that before you had children, uh, you, you definitely see the love of Christ giving Himself for us, mm-hmm. but the love of the Father can sometimes not be the focus. And he said, you said once you had Ben, once you had your kids, once you had Maggie, mm-hmm. you started seeing the idea is really unspeakable. I mean, the yeah. thought of anything happening to your children is just unspeakable. It's the worst kind of thing you can possibly imagine. And the thought of God not, with, not sparing His own Son, you know, th- that is, that, that's astonishing stuff. And it never gets old. I mean, to, to think about that, Scott, you've pointed us so often to the gospel. It never gets to where that, that should have to impact us every minute of every day when we think through that. And so when we get cranky, and that's going to be a temptation this week, let's go back to this. Let's go back to the atonement and say, hey, wait a second here. Am I focused on the whole wrong thing? Am I focusing on my uh, temporary struggles, trials, uh, fears, whatever those are, those will be overwhelmed by this subject when we, uh, when we think through it. The amazing thing to me, Jerry, uh, is that none of this caught God by surprise. Our sin didn't caught, catch God by surprise. Uh, I, I turn to Ephesians 1, uh, verses. I'll start with verse 3 and read a, a bit here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's election, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, this is before the foundation. This is God's plan before creation. In love, there's the love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Jerry, you always talking about lavishing upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan. It's God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Wow, we, we, could, we could stop right there and, and capture the essence of the gospel. Yeah, well, man, that's so good, Papa, thank you. Before we go to active obedience and passive obedience, which is I find fascinating, that last line on page 249, there was no other way for God to save us than for Christ to die in our place. Mark, could you one more time Help us to understand why it had to be like that. It had to be Christ to die. Yeah, I, and I, uh, in Bible college, I had one professor, and we disagreed on, on numerous things, but I loved this guy. He, he loved the Lord. It was so evident. And uh, Dr. Reese, and I, I still remember, I took a two-week crash course on Matthew. It was a two-week course. It was 8 to 12 every, you know, for two weeks, and we just went through it really fast. And I just remember uh, getting toward the end of those two weeks, he was lecturing on Gethsemane, and the, I, it's one of my clearest memories from class in, in Bible college, because the room went completely silent. Dr. Reese is talking, and he, he said, you know, Jesus is saying in the garden, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me, if there's any other way. And uh, Dr. Reese just went silent, and it, it was almost this awkward silence over the room, and he kind of fiddled around with the podium, and he looked down for a second. I could just see tears welling up in his eyes, and he said, if there was another way 
for God to save us, apart from Christ going to the cross, He would have provided. But He said, this is the extent of the love of Christ. This is the extent of the love of the Father, that the Father gives up the Son. The Son chooses willingly. This is not child abuse. He chooses willingly to submit Himself to the Father's plan and to endure this. And He said, if, if there was any alternative, God would have provided it. There was no other alternative. If, if, this, if God was going to provide salvation for sinful people like me, Jesus had to die. And if Jesus would have snapped His fingers and called for the legions of angels to rescue Him, which He had every right to do and which justice would call for Him to do in a sense. I mean, it's like, that's what you deserve. Get out of there and kill the Roman soldiers and escape. Then we would be left, like Scott said, where the fallen angels are, which we would be left in our own state uh, awaiting uh, justly eternal conscious torment under God's wrath, which we all deserve. And so, uh, th there, there was no other way for God to both be just and the justifier of sinners like us Didn't Scott, through that. I think in that your example there too in the garden you see we we talked about the two natures the fully god and the fully man nature of of christ uh, there was there was a struggle yes his humanity and and yes and and so that that's the struggle he was going through wanting to be perfectly obedient to his father at all costs anything you add there scott I mean, I just think what you said about the application part, I thought one application of, of studying this is we want to think about the cross, right? Like if you're tempted to be cranky or even if you're not doing well spiritually or I've had times even working on like a sermon, I just don't feel right spiritually. I just kind of close the Bible and I just go and listen to the gospel. I just need the gospel. We're so prone to just drift slowly away from it. We got to come back again and again and again. And it just, like you said, it's always it just seems to just do something. It just stirs. Like even right now, we, we, it's just stirring again when you come back. I just think a practical thing. We think, we, oh, yeah, I got the gospel. Well, no, you don't have the gospel. We got to get it before us over and over again. And, uh, go ahead. Uh, well, just Tyler Williams, right before he and Victoria left to go to California to Master's Seminary, Tyler gave me uh, the hymn book, Hymns of Grace. And I, uh, I was happy to have it, but I've never really had a hymn book for devotions before. And, and I'll just say, this is just a random tip here. I have found having a hymn book I don't sing, okay? My, my wife would be scarred for life. My kids would be like, what is dad doing upstairs? What is that sound? Call, call security. But uh, I, I don't sing out loud. But I, I, have, I have a hymn book. And I, I mean, even just this morning, just because you're, I mean, even preparing for my sermon today, I was feeling a little bit of what you're talking about. So I had to put away my sermon preparation, pull out hymns of grace, and just I read through slowly a few hymns about the gospel and even about, about the birth of Christ. And it stirred me all over again. So just having those resources we can turn back to, those books and resources that get at our affections, that go with the Scripture, as well that, that complement that and that remind us and refresh us of those truths is crucial. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah. Going on to the nature of the atonement. In this section, we consider two aspects of Christ's work. Christ's obedience for us, in which he obeyed the requirements of the law in our place and was perfectly obedient to the will of God, the Father, as our representative, and Christ's suffering for us, in which he took the penalty due for our sins and as a result, died for our sins. Um, could you guys help us there, especially with this first one, Christ's obedience for us? I think this one is less, maybe, um, I don't think about this one as much as, as number two, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I can jump in with the, the act of obedience of Christ. When I read this, I, almost, I immediately pretty much thought of this story that I hope will maybe help tie this in. But I, I thought of this story, and I'll try to share this story. Many of you may know J. Gresham Machen. Uh, he died in 1937, New Year's Day 1937, born in 1880, I think. He was 55, never married. He helped found Westminster Seminary. He helped found the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, wrote some famous books that people may know. But J. Gresham Machen, uh, it was 
Christmas, uh, he was teaching in Philadelphia, Westminster Seminary. He'd been invited to go to North Dakota uh, for, to, to, to visit some churches there and, and teach there. And uh, he was in really bad health, and his friends were saying, you, don't, you shouldn't go. But he went anyway, and he had pneumonia, I think, and he took this train ride out there. It's 1936, and uh, the, the, the weather was 20 below zero when he got to North Dakota, and almost immediately his health declined rapidly. They, they took him to the hospital immediately, and they knew this was very serious. He wasn't going to live long. So he's in the hospital, and it's New Year's Eve, and one of the pastors of the churches that he was going to see came to, to visit him, and uh, he had just had sort of a dream about heaven. It made me think of you, Jerry. He had this dream about heaven. Now, Machen was a pretty serious guy, but this dream got him very excited about heaven. And the pastor came in, whose name was Sam, and Machen said, Sam, it was glorious. It was glorious. So here he is, hours away from heaven. He is so excited about heaven. He was probably more excited than Jerry is right now. Maybe not, <laughs> maybe not, but he was very excited about heaven. He just, he's right there on the threshing door. Like he's about to cross over, and he is super excited about heaven. And then the very next day, his last day on this earth, he had a few hours left to live. He sends a telegram. It's New Year's Day, 1937. He sends a telegram to John Murray. John Murray is another seminary professor, written some famous books as well. And this is what he said that made me think of this, this topic. He said, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Now you think, would you have said that in your telegram? Why is Machen saying he's so thankful for the active obedience of Christ? No hope without it. Well, Piper and, and Michael Horton help us out here. Piper says this about uh, Machen. He says, here's Machen taking comfort, not just from a general truth about Christ, but from a doctrinally precise understanding of the active obedience of Christ, which Machen believed the active obedience of, of Christ was Machen's own obedience in Christ and would make him a suitable heir of eternal life for Christ's sake. So I hope we're getting the idea of the active obedience of Christ. And then Horton says this, our suffering Savior cried out, it is finished. John 19 on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And, he, and Horton says, not only concerning this final trial, but as the capstone to the whole life that he so willingly lived to God for us. So it is finished was the capstone of his whole life of obedience, is what Horton is saying. And then Horton says, while his, Jesus' passive obedience on the cross canceled our sins, it is his active obedience throughout his life that provides the ground upon which God can declare us righteous. And this part moved me this week. He said, finally, it is good to know about the active obedience of Christ, especially when we're facing death. Why? Because every time we have failed to conform to God's will, in thought, word, and deed, by actively sinning or failing to conform to his revealed will, his son has fulfilled the obedience that we owe by never once giving into the lust, pride, sloth, greed, selfishness, and malice that we so often give into. Jesus Christ becomes our Savior, not only in his atoning death, but throughout his life. So the active obedience of Jesus provides the ground upon which God can declare us righteous. This is why Machen was so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, because there is no hope without it. Luther, Luther capitalized on that and said, you know, unless we understand that righteousness, then, then we get anxious and, and worry and are afraid. Mm. But once we focus on the fact that Christ is our righteousness, it's extra notes, it's outside of us, uh, wow, it's okay then. Part of the great exchange, right? Yes, we exactly. traded our sin and we received Christ's righteousness. That's Christ right. took our sin, wages of sin is death, died for it, and then we, that righteousness has been imputed or credited Absolutely to our amazing. account. And just think about that verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, he never sinned himself, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In him. So just think, how did Jesus become sin? It wasn't with his own sin. He was sinless. He knew no sin. He never experienced sin. He never sinned. So how was Jesus, how, did he, how was he made sin? Well, it wasn't with his sin. It was with our sin. So our sin was credited to him. And he was treated as if he had lived our life. 
So on the cross, God treats Jesus like he lived your sinful life in mine. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our account so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. We are not the righteousness of God in ourselves. No one in this room has performed a perfect day of obedience, much less uh, we haven't performed a perfect five minutes of obedience in our life. There are, sanctification is happening, we're growing, but none of us lives a perfect five minutes with perfectly loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we need the act of obedience of Jesus. We are counted righteous in Christ with His righteousness, just as He was counted sinful on the cross with our sinfulness. That's the great exchange. My sin to Him, His righteousness to me. And again, I don't have experience in this area, but uh, pastors I've listened to who've spent a lot of time over the years and over the decades in hospitals at deathbeds of believers who are dying. Uh, I remember one pastor mentioning that over and over again, as he goes and is invited to the hospital in those, in those moments right before death as a believer is there, so often what comes up is past regret. So you'll have an older saint is sitting there, and they will begin as a, maybe a dad is thinking about the ways he failed to love his children as he wished he would have, or he starts thinking about the ways he didn't love his wife as he wished he would have, and failures in his life spiritually, his lack of prayer. And so all these regrets begin to come back, and that's perhaps part of what's going on. Jay Gresham Machen on his deathbed says, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Jesus. Because yes, there's all kinds of things that may haunt us, but on the, on the deathbed as we're facing meeting God… It's, it's wonderful to know that, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that, that we have that to stand confidently before Him despite our many uh, failures. Yeah. And hate to go outside of Romans, but that 2 Corinthians 5.21 <laughs> is about as good as Absolutely. one verse on the gospel. Papa, anything to add there? No, I, was, I just echo what you guys yeah. said. That passive obedience is amazing as well. Suffering for his whole life, the physical pain and death, the pain of bearing sin, the abandonment, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Um, bearing the wrath of God, um, you know, the penal substitution that there was by God taking that. Jerry Bridges, your buddy uh, Scott, says that, it's, that propitiation could be to exhaust God's perfect wrath. He exhausted it, just took it completely um, away as he as it was all showered on on Christ, so every drop was poured out of that cup of of wrath. Um, thoughts about about any of that about his passive obedience? Well, there's a there's a whole there's a whole uh, uh, massive amount. You could read read Isaiah 53, for example, uh, as an example of his passive obedience. We've talked about the two natures, uh, the pain on the cross. Uh, generally considered one of the most painful deaths ever devised by mankind, and the Romans were had had perfected that. And um, we 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 study the crucifixion of Christ in particular, but it was not uncommon for the Romans to to crucify thousands of of people uh, at the entrance to us to a city, for example just as a reminder that they're in charge. So they, they, they capitalized on this very, very painful form of, of execution. Um, the, the, the physical pain, we've, we've, we've gone through that. We don't have time to, to read this, but on page 252, there's some medical um, explanations of what Jesus perhaps went through on the cross. Um, the, the pain of bearing sin uh, you know, he was fully man and fully God. 
Jesus, as fully God, could not even look on sin, and, and, and yet he was a perfect, fully man, righteous in his own right, and, and he had to endure that, that, that agony of, of the torture, that three hours that Friday when it, God took the sun away, and it was dark, and he felt all the wrath, the ugliness, the filth of our yeah. Mark. sin. R.C. Sproul tells a story. He was preaching one time, I think it was in an Amish community, and in the middle of his talk, he was talking about the crucifixion, and a man he never met in the back of the room just yelled, yelled out, that's primitive and obscene about the crucifixion. And R.C. said he was so taken aback. He said, can you say that again? He goes, no, of course I knew what he said, but I wanted a moment to gather my thoughts. So I said, what did you say? He said, that's primitive and obscene, the crucifixion. And R.C. said he stopped, and he goes, you know, I really like the two words you've chosen to describe the cross. He said, first of all, primitive. Uh, I mean, it doesn't take a, a PhD to understand these basic components of sin and righteousness and God's judgment and our need for atonement. He said, you're right. In a sense, it's primitive. Anybody on the whole world, any primitive tribesman could understand this basic message. But I especially love the second word you chose, sir, <laughs> the word obscene. He said, when we think of an obscenity, we think of something that is grotesque, something that is beyond the border, something that is transgressing, something that is wrong and evil and ignominious. He goes, well, what greater obscenity was there in all of human history than this condensation of all the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust Christ poured out on Christ in this moment? You're right. There was no greater obscenity than what Jesus was by imputation on the cross. He was sinless, but He was all the sins of the world right there on, on top of him. And so, uh, Sproul said that, that that is a good way to describe it. Even though the man was mocking, that, that is a way to think of it. Mm. Scott? Yeah, I, I think in terms of the pain of Jesus versus uh, the pain of bearing sin, I think we can make mistakes with looking at his physical suffering. We can kind of make too much of the physical suffering, or we can just rush right past it and not think about it at all and go to the spiritual suffering. I think it's, it's, we need to think about the physical suffering of Jesus. There is something powerful. Like, when Mark, when you've just yeah. walked through... Uh, you know, the whipping and, and that type of thing, it is good for us to, to, to see that because it reminds us of the horror of sin. And I mean, Spurgeon had this powerful sermon about them spitting in Jesus' face. It is so powerful. The way he, he unpacks it for you and just think that there's no more blackness than we spit in Jesus' face. You just think, how in the world? You see the humility of Jesus. It's unbelievable when you just think he is their creator and there he stands being spit upon. It's just, it brings worship. when you just, That's just the, the physical side. I mean, just the, the staggering minute. But then you think of that he became sin part. And again, it's quoting Spurgeon in the Isaiah 53 sermon. He talked about what must it have been like for him to become sin. And he said, well, somebody may answer, well, he bore the sin of all his elect. He said, yes, but not so fast. He said, don't just jump there. He said, think about your sins individually first. And th this is what he said. All your sins, what must they weigh? All the sins of all your years he carried. All the sins against light and knowledge, sins against law and gospel, weekday sins, Sabbath sins, hand sins, lip sins, heart sins, Sins against the Father, sins against the Son, sins against the Holy Ghost, sins of all shapes, all laid upon Him. Can you get the thought now? So that's just your sin. Then He said, multiply that. Think of the sins of all the rest of His people. Persecutions and murders at the door of such a one as Saul of Tarsus, adultery at the door of David, sins of every shape and size. For God's elect have been among the chief of sinners. Those whom he has chosen have not been the best of men by nature, but some of them the very worst. Christ looks abroad among the sons of men, and while a Pharisee has passed by, Zacchaeus, the publican, is selected. And the sins of all these, with their full weight, laid upon him. And I just would say, do we survey the wondrous cross? I mean, you come back and you're just amazed afresh at what he's done. So I'm just saying, don't 
rush past the physical and certainly don't rush past the spiritual side of, of what he suffered for us. It is good for us spiritually. And I mean, it, it, just to think back, when Paul says, why did God save me? Paul says, to show his perfect patience to all those who would ever believe. First Timothy 1. Paul, it's almost like Paul uses that bridge analogy, you know, the, the, the famous bridge illustration. You've got sin on one side, the wages of sin is death, that we earn death like a paycheck with our sin, but we do not earn salvation. It is a free gift that we don't deserve. So on one side, you've got the wages of sin is death, you have this pit in the middle, and then you have the cross like a bridge going across the chasm to the other side where God is, where salvation is, where free gift of eternal life is. And it's almost as though Paul and these others are saying, you know, look at the weight of sin the cross has already borne up. The Apostle Paul, with his life of murder and evil, the cross easily bore up, Christ, uh, bore up uh, Paul across that bridge, and Paul was able to make his way across to salvation. And you think about all the people who've been saved, who've been horrific sinners in their past, how the cross with ease is able to bear up the worst of sinners, and then it's like turning, you know, Paul, I can imagine Paul turning to you and saying, you think it can't bear your weight? You think the cross can't handle your past and your sin? Uh, the cross has handled the sins of hundreds of millions of people over the last thousands of years. The cross can bear you. Uh, it, it, Jesus can handle you. He has infinite merit in His death, infinite atoning power in, in, his, in, his, in his death, infinite righteousness because He's not just man, He's the God-man. And so, his, his blood and His righteousness have infinite merit. And so, He can bear up any, the, the worst, uh, and even those who think that they're not as bad, but the cross can bear up, can bear up all. And please, if you know somebody, and we do, we know people that are like, oh, they're too far gone. I don't think, I don't think God will ever get them. That continue to pray, continue to witness, continue to share the gospel. Go after them. Let them know this message, that the cross can take their sin. They have never gone too far. And even though it may, because Paul says that. He says, I am an example that if, if God chose me and saved me out of killing Christians for a living, then he can get anybody. And, uh, and we need to hold to that, to that hope for those that are lost, those that we love, those that we meet that uh, look like they're too far gone. Can I just read 1 Timothy 1 real quick? I'm just going to read what Mark was just referencing. So I'll just read 1 Timothy 1. Uh, Real quick, uh, from verse 12 on, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then I love this. He just burst into praise to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, he just can't even, he touches his conversion there and he can't help but just burst out out of nowhere almost into praising God. And this shows us how good it is again to come back there. I just have to mention here, just Jonathan Edwards, when he was reading this passage was converted. When he got to verse 17, Edwards was a teenager and he had already thought he was a Christian, but he wasn't genuinely converted. And when he got to verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He said the glory of God was finally perceived into his heart. And it, it, there was regeneration that happened right there in that verse. That's tremendous. Papa? What about the abandonment? Uh, that, that's on uh, 253. I think you were, we were looking at the different uh, effects of the cross. 
Jesus was abandoned by his father. And yet it was his father's, uh, Isaiah 53 said, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Mm. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall, see his, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear, bear their iniquities. That's what we're talking about. But to do this, he had to satisfy and assume this, this wrath of God in, in, in his body, in, in his, his physical body and his spiritual body. And, and, and he cried out at the end, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He'd never known from all eternity separation from the Father except for a few hours that Friday afternoon. And, and that, that's, that's, that's a real cry of anguish. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Papa, don't you think it's hard for us to maybe relate? We can say it would be horrifying for us to be abandoned by our family or by somebody but we love, but this is all of eternity past the perfect love relationship that they had. Like, I don't know that our minds can quite we grasp. Can't, I don't think we can get wrapped up. Yeah, but that, then you say that abandonment makes that all the more, uh, just the pain that that must have been to both God the Father and God the Son. That's right, uh, both ways. On both, on both ways there. Could you help us, uh, either any of you guys on 255 there, I think that list of four things. The four terms show how Christ's death met the four needs that we have as sinners. Um, I thought those were good. Mark, you went and tackled those for us. Those are, uh, yeah. those are pretty, pretty neat. Just before we mention that, just, just as a, something to look up later on YouTube, uh, there's a sermon by R.C. Sproul called The Curse Motif in the Gospel, something like that. The, curse, like the, the Atonement. Yes. The Curse Motif in the Atonement by R.C. Sproul. And... Uh, this is not bragging, but I happen to have been there at that conference when he gave that message in 2008. And, and I, I can still remember, it, so it, was, it was just unbelievably powerful because Sproul was uh, talking about this very thing, the abandonment of Jesus. And, and he started and ended that sermon saying the same thing. This is when he'd been a Christian now for over half a century. He said, I've been studying and reading about the cross, he said, for, for more than 50 years. And then at the very end of the sermon, Sproul does not get choked up very often. And when he gets moved, you better step out of the way kind of a thing. And R.C. got choked up, and he just said, uh, at the end of the sermon, he said, I, he said after 50 years of, of reading many books on this topic, he said, I can't be, and he, just, he pauses and he kind of scratches his forehead. He said, I can't begin to penetrate that and to, uh, to explain to you what it meant that Jesus was forsaken. He said, but I know that it's true, and I know that it was for me. He said, I, I can only kind of look over the precipice. I can't fathom those depths. And, and one other reference, too, is just Spurgeon has a sermon that I don't often quote, but it's just overwhelmingly powerful near the end of his life called Lama Sabachthani. My God, why have you forsaken me? If you look up Spurgeon, Lama Sabachthani uh, on Google, it, it is one of my all-time favorite Spurgeon sermons where he just dwells on the abandonment cry of Jesus for the whole sermon. And it is, if, you're dry, if you feel spiritually dry, Look that thing up on Google and read it. It is just overwhelming. Can okay. You, can you finish though that? Because you were sitting next to a kid, remember? Yeah. In there, and can you kind of talk about what what he said and what, how you were feeling after that sprawl? Do you remember? Yeah, that? I, yeah, I remember. I remember after the whole thing was over and the panel discussion was over, we go outside in the Louisville sunlight and it's bright outside and we're trying to go find food or something. <laughs> and uh, I was with a college friend of mine and we walk out into the, and I just remember feeling 
overwhelmed, like in a, in a way that is unusually strong. I felt an overwhelming sense that I was God's child and that He loved me. It's hard to explain that, but I remember going out into Louisville sunlight with my, with my friends who were with me on the trip and just being overwhelmed by God's love uh, because of the abandonment of Jesus. Just an incredible… If you, people, you know, this cosmic child abuse nonsense, if you want to understand the love of God, He was pleased to crush His Son for you. Just like focusing on that, meditating on that, there is no greater evidence of the love of God than than what Christ did on the cross, what what the Father lovingly sent the Son to do for us on the cross. And that leads us into these points here. Number one, uh, on 255, we deserve to die as the penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death. That corresponds with Christ's sacrifice, that He sacrificed Himself to pay the penalty. Number two, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. That corresponds with the the next number two, propitiation, that Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. Number three, we in our own sin have made a separation between ourselves and our God. We are separated from God by our sins. So Christ reconciles us to God through His death. And number four, we are in bondage to sin. We're enslaved to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. And so number four, He redeems us, like Israel being redeemed out of Egypt. The, the redemption of, of, of Christ, he, he, he buys us out of slavery to sin and, and gives us a new master and a new kingdom. What about the ransom? Uh, you know, Jesus Himself said uh, that He was a, uh, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He said that in Mark, He said that in Matthew, and then First Timothy, Paul uses that as a ransom. And, and the ransom, important point here, the ransom was not paid to Satan. That's one of yeah. his points here. Uh, not trying to just beat up on Chronicles of Narnia, but even in the movie of the Chronicles of Narnia, if you noticed, it looks like Aslan is paying it to Satan. If you've noticed how it's framed, that's not correct. Satan is not the one being paid off for our sin, uh, despite what some movies or books that are in many ways very good uh, would say to you. Uh, no, th- this ransom was paid to God. Uh, th- this was God's justice. This was, this was the payment paid to God the Father. This is what Jesus did uh, for us. Redemption. Papa, could you close us? Thank you, Jerry. Father God, uh, just like uh, Mark mentioned about uh, R.C.'s uh, uh, sermon uh, on, the, uh, on this subject, uh, I was overwhelmed as well. I, I, I listened to that a couple days ago, and, and uh, I, I saw witness to the, the emotion, the gravity uh, of, this, of this issue on, on uh, this uh, great servant of yours. And uh, when we really contemplate that, I think that's what Grudem wants us to do. Uh, he's captured all of this in, 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 in words, and, but yet he wants to impress upon us the, 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 the gift that we have, the, uh, the atonement, the, the, uh, the delivery from our sins that, that Christ paid for us uh, through his body, through his blood, uh, both uh, passively and, and actively for on our behalf. And yet perfectly, Grudem uh, talks about in the early part of the chapter, the work of Christ. We don't normally think about the work of Christ, but this was all God's plan. This was all the plan of the Trinity from before the creation of the world, and yet he perfectly orchestrated it in the cross, 
and in the death and in the burial and the resurrection of Christ. So thank you, Lord, today that we can just touch on these matters. But I would encourage everyone uh, in, in our hearing to, to open this book and to read it and to focus on these Romans passages and on the uh, Second Corinthians 5 passage, which so vividly uh, describe this gift uh, of atonement. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mark, can you put those sermons on the YouTube page for us, uh, if you can find uh, the scroll, the scroll in it. Yeah, yeah, I can. I can find the link. That would be a good, good thing for us to to watch those this week. Good. And next week, resurrection and ascension. Next week.